0: Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 24 of the Madden America podcast. This week, Madden America's associate news editor, Zenobia Morrill, interviews respected academic and author, Dr. George Atwood.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Zenobia Morrill, a news editor at Madden America News. For those of you who haven't seen that part of our website before, we provide daily coverage of the latest mental health research that challenges the biomedical paradigm in psychology and psychiatry. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Dr. George Atwood. Dr. Atwood has devoted a very substantial part of his life working to study and treat what he refers to as so-called psychosis over the past 50 years. He has authored or co-authored, particularly with Dr. Robert Solero, several books and more than 100 articles, including his book, The Abyss of Madness, and a well-known article from 2002, Shattered Worlds, Psychotic States, The Experience of Personal Annihilation. He has previously offered a critique of traditional diagnostic systems in psychiatry in his piece, Men on Hooks, featured on our Mad in America website. Additionally, he taught as a professor at Rutgers University, where many of his lectures are posted on his website, www.georgeatwood.com, which will be linked within this podcast. Finally, he is a recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society from the Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis. Welcome, Dr. Atwood.
0: Thank you Zenobia. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yes, it's a pleasure to have you. To begin, could you tell us about the origin and history of your work?
0: Yes. My interest in the field of psychology began when I was still a high school student, maybe 16 or just barely 17 years old. But be- before that time, as I look back, I remember having the idea that I wanted to be some sort of a scientist, most probably a physicist i was a good physics student and i was fascinated with it i seemed to have some talent in mathematics and so my plan had been to uh, go to college and study physics and w- work in that field and i i i think i had great expectations without working them out exactly specifically to become a cosmologist you know, that, mm-hmm. that, was my, that was my idea, the theory of the universe, the origin and nature and future destiny of the universe. My father wanted me desperately to be a scientist. My father was tr- trained himself as a metallurgical engineer, but that's applied science, and the idea of his son, jo- George Atwood Jr., I'm named after him, mm-hmm. be- becoming a more fundamental scientist was extremely appealing, and, um, I liked physics because it seemed so foundational, that's the word that comes to mind. I didn't like chemistry because it seemed like it was derivative and biology was more derivative still. So looking back on that, when I think about the young person I was, why was was I drawn to physics in particular? It was because it seemed like it was about ultimate reality, something really basic, Mm -hmm. something lasting, something permanent and essential. And the thought came to me this morning as I was figuring out what I might talk about that my tra- tragedy in my childhood is actually involved in, in the desire to study things that are changeless, permanent, essential. Mm-hmm. My mother died when I was eight years old and the shadow of her loss is over all my life and work. But I did not become a physicist. To my father's dismay, I fell in love with psychology Here's the story of how it happened. One fine day, it must have been 1962 or something, I I found myself uh, wandering through the bookstore of the University of Arizona. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and and went to the university there, but before I even went to college, I was already down at the bookstore looking for something interesting, not knowing what I was searching for something to give meaning to my little life at the time. And I recall as if it were yesterday that my eyes focused on a little paperback book that was green and yellow in color, a bantam paperback for 95 cents. The title was Beyond the Pleasure Principle by Sigmund Freud. And I remember thinking, that's cool beyond the pleasure principle. I don't even know what the pleasure principle is. And this goes beyond it. So I decided I would find out what's beyond the pleasure principle. And I paid my money and took the book home and began to read it. I had had no prior exposure to Freud or to psychology at all. So I didn't know what to expect. I read it from beginning to end. I have to say that I did not understand a word that I was reading. But something about it touched me, reached me, and so I read it again. And then I read it again. And I don't know how many times, but maybe 25 times I read it from start to finish and then gave a report on it, a oral report in, in a senior problems class that I was taking at my high school. By the time I got to the, to that stage with that book, I had virtually memorized the whole thing. I still didn't understand what I was reading, but... Reading and rereading and rereading, I became more or less the master of its language. And and I was able to give a presentation in my class that impressed my teacher. He said that it was the best presentation he'd ever heard from any student on any topic ever, Mm. which was tremendous reinforcement for me. (laughs) Right. Beyond the pleasure principle. Then I went back to the bookstore of the University of Arizona and found another book, Psychology and Religion by Carl Gustav Jung. And I picked that up too. I found it even more difficult to understand than the Beyond the Pleasure Principle had been. But I began to gain an impression as to what these theorists' ideas were about and what the research concerned that they had devoted their lives to. And I fell completely in love with this as a career and put aside the idea of becoming a physicist to my father's dismay and decided that I was going to be like Freud and Jung, go to medical school and become a psychiatrist and devote my life to psychoanalysis as it was revealed to me in these early books. So I signed up for the pre-med program at the University of Arizona with with the plan of graduating, going to medical school, then undertaking a psychiatric residency and and spending the rest of my life um, dealing with the mentally ill, exploring human nature, Hopefully making great discoveries, that was, that was my naive plan. I crashed in the pre-med program. I'm, 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 I'm not going to go into the bloody details, but <laughs> organic chemistry did me in. I had disastrous experiences in organic chemistry lab, and it highlighted to me that the, the program that I was contemplating completing of the pre-med program, the uh, medical school program, and then the internship before I would even get to the psychiatry was too long a delay and too much of a diversion. So I decided to switch my academic plans. I became a psychology major at University of Arizona, graduated and went to clinical psychology at the University of Oregon to get and received a PhD there in 1969. Then came my serious clinical training, I think of my education as having two parts. The first part was the false part. That would be all the way up to and including getting a PhD. Mm. The second part was the true part or the real part that began at the Western Missouri Mental Health Center in Kansas City, Missouri in 1969 where I worked from there until 1972. Why did I go to that institution? Because there was a renowned teacher, psychotherapist, a legendary person who was the director of training in that program, his name was Austin Delorier. He became my first great mentor figure and the first teacher that I ever really had. It's a little bit hard to explain. I had many instructors in the different classes I'd gone through. and I memorized vast amounts of information to get through the programs I had undertaken. But I never had a teacher, a mentor, or a figure that I could really look up to and be transformed by as I was by Austin Delorier. And he had a reputation for being able to do that. And a friend of mine had studied with him and said I should definitely go there. And so I did. I was able to uh, be accepted into the Program as a postdoctoral fellow in in training.
1: Your work seems like a marked difference from what tends to be done in the field, and you've mentioned some of what's influenced you. But what has influenced your approaches in more recent years? Could you speak to that a bit?
0: Yes. One of the great influences on my work after the years I had in my training with Austin Delorier was with the second great mentor of my career, Sylvan Tompkins, who was one of the fine, amazing theorists of 20th century psychology. When I came to Rutgers in 1971, uh, without realizing it, found myself next door to him and formed a close relationship and worked with him for a number of years. In the paper on my website, listed under essays there, the, the, there's a paper called um, Legacies of the Golden Age. The Golden Age is my phrase for uh, the years from 1971, 72, up to about 1979, where I worked closely with Sylvan Tompkins. My colleague, Bob Stollerow, was on the faculty of Rutgers at the same time. And together with other people, we worked collaboratively on Fundamental ideas in personality theory together that have had a lasting influence on all my work and all my writing. One of the themes to emerge from this period of the of the golden age uh, is that of the subjectivity of personality theory, which is the, was the topic of my first book with Robert Stollerow Faces. The title of the book is Faces in a Cloud. It was written in actually 1976 that published uh, only in 1979, but so we fin- finished it a few years earlier. It's it's a study of different theories of personality, Freud, Jung, Wilhelm Reich, Otto Rank. we focused on there, in terms of analyzing how a theoretical system expresses, is influenced by, and symbolizes the personal world of the theorist. In other words, the personality theory is interpreted in terms of the personality of the theorist. That book, Faces in a Cloud, which uh, Bob Stolaro and I wrote together, formed the foundation of a lasting collaboration that he and I have had, and that resulted in six more books being produced over the course of the the following 35 or 40 years that we've worked together. Our, Our um intersubjective approach to psychoanalysis embo- embodies all these influences. Mm-hmm. There there have been three amazing pieces of good fortune that have come to me in 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 my work since um, getting a, a, a doctor back in 1969. One was to find Austin Delorier and develop under his guidance and learn the ropes of working with so-called schizophrenic psychotherapeutically. The second was running into Sylvan Tompkins and being able to work closely with him and 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 absorb his thinking and be inspired by it. And the third is to, to have discovered and bonded with Robert Stolaro, who is a close friend of mine and has been a close collaborator and and he is the most brilliant mind in contemporary psychoanalysis as far as I'm concerned.
1: In your work, you've aligned yourself with a phenomenological approach, and I was hoping you could describe a bit more about what that is, along with why you refer to symptoms of psychosis as so-called psychosis. Uh, In addition to that, I realize that you've been studying so-called schizophrenia for 50 years, and I'm wondering what your views are on what you call madness. Finally, I'd be interested to know, given your perspectives, your view on the current state and future of the fields of psychology and psychiatry.
0: Okay, thank, thank you for all those questions. It's mm-hmm. a big, tall order. Yeah, well, I guess what I'll try to do is uh, just give my give my reflections on uh, all all of them and see how that unfolds. The the question that sort of stood out in the list that you just gave is uh, what is madness here's what i think after studying this for a very long time madness is not an illness and it is not a disease it is not a condition existing somehow inside a person and it's not a thing of any kind having objective existence that's how that's that's how i think of it madness mm-hmm. actually instead is an experience a person may have one involving in its essential core, a fall into non-being. Madness is the dissolution of all order and a descent into chaos. It is the greatest catastrophe of subjectivity that can happen to a person. The felt reality of the world disintegrates and the enduring solidity and integrity of one's sense of selfhood, the ongoing experience of I am, becomes tenuous, unstable, and sometimes even vanishes altogether. Madness is the abyss, and there's nothing more frightening than this, not even death. Our minds can generate meanings and images of our deaths. We can picture the world surviving us, and we can identify with those that come later, or otherwise try to immortalize ourselves through our works. We can rage against the dying of the light. And we can look forward to reunions with lost loved ones in the afterworld. We can think about the meaninglessness of human existence and its finitude. We can be relieved that all our sorrows will soon be over. We can even admire ourselves for being the only creatures in existence that we know of, anyway, who perceive their own wretched destiny to be extinguished. The abyss of madness offers no such possibilities. It is the end of all possible responses and meanings, the erasure of a world in which there is anything coherent to respond to, the melting away of anyone to engage in a response. It is much more scary than death. And this is proven by the fact that people in annihilation fear which is the terror of madness, so often commit suicide rather than allow themselves to be engulfed by it. Mm. So that, that that's a kind of an initial summary st- statement of my viewpoint. The uh, phenomenological approach is implicit in my description of madness as a certain kind of experience we have. Phenomenology is the study of experience. Let me give a thought or two now about diagnosis. Everyone who enters our field encounters diagnostic systems. Sometimes the systems we are taught turn into dragons that consume the minds of those who've used them. There's, there's nothing wrong from my point of view with careful studies of the symptoms and signs of psychological disturbances and with efforts to classify the richly varied phenomena one sees in this realm of study. You you have to have ordering principles that you can apply so that we're not just left adrift in a sea of confusion. A problem arises, however, when the classifications we impose, when when the classifications that we impose on the variations that are observed become reified and objectified, in other words, turned into mental diseases imagined as literally existing somehow inside the people we're trying to understand. Our patients in extreme distress reify their fantasies, generally in order to substantiate personal realities that have come under assault and are threatened with dissolution. We as clinicians, in parallel, often reify our diagnostic concepts, ascribing the chaotic manifestations confronting us to a literally, objectively existing disease process inside the patient. Phenomenology refrains from engaging in such an interpretation. The locating of the problem in the internal is not grounded in any actual scientific knowledge and basically takes the clinician off the hook as far as I'm concerned. The clinician is not implicated in what is seen. Instead, the clinician sits high and dry, observing and classifying from a position of serene detachment, wrapped in the cordon sanitaire. This shields the clinician from feeling responsible for how he or she is experienced and utterly neutralizes the power of the patient's experiences to attack or displace our own ways of defining ourselves. Mm -hmm. The problem, as I see it, is that the clinician is implicated. What people show us depends in part on how we are responding to them. Human experience is always embedded in a relational context. This is a core principle of so-called intersubjectivity theory. If the response of the clinician to what he's observing organizes itself around an objectifying psychiatric diagnosis, one can expect to see reactions to the distancing and invalidation that is involved. If those very reactions to being object, objectified are then ascribed again to the supposed mental illness, the distancing is deepened and the disjunction solid, solidifies. So it's important to learn about diagnostic systems that we must never let them become our commanding viewpoint. One should be guided instead by attention to the patient's experiences and reflections on one's one's own, one's own experiences. We are still at the beginning of this strange and difficult country. Maybe I can turn now a little bit to uh, the question about the future of our field as I see it.
1: Sure. Sure. I was thinking as well for our listeners who are more unfamiliar with intersubjective psychotherapy, um, describing a little bit about what that is or where that came about.
0: Maybe maybe I can come to that. Sure. The future, the future, the future. Where is our field going? Where do I hope to see it going? Let me try to begin answering that, asking what are the great issues that are challenging the field of psychotherapy today? Maybe I can imagine a future in which scholars and clinicians will look back on our current situation. What will they see? What will they say were the most significant problems of our present age? So I, I picture future scholars looking back upon us now as having created the foundation for a new golden age of psychotherapy practice one that fulfills the latent potential of our field i have an extremely optimistic idea about the future and i realize that not everyone agrees with agrees with my point of view but let me see if i can unfold it further many people would regard what i'm about to say as being based on blind hope Mm. there are different aspects to the to the future as i see it to, to to my my image of what future scholars will, will look will look back upon as they you know examine the, the, the writings and thinking of our time. One emerging theme is, in the field has to do has to do with a growing attention to phenomenology and to a receding of extrinsic standards against which human lives are measured. Mm-hmm. A second aspect pertains to an extension of clinical practice to the most severe ranges of psychological disturbances. So I'm gonna talk about both of these. Great. First, let's take phenomenology. Phenomenology is the study of experience. Imagine a world of psychiatry and psychology that has escaped the domination of the medical model, one that grounds itself instead in the study of human lives as they are lived and experienced. The diagnostic systems we know today are based on an assessment of so-called symptoms, which are defined by their status as departures from a pre-established standard of normality or mental health. Mm -hmm. Imagine a diagnostic framework that instead groups individual worlds of experience according to the content and themes that they show. The, The word diagnosis, if you look at its etymology, means a separating and a knowing what i'm speaking of is worlds of individual experience that can be known and studied one sees certain resemblances and certain differences placing a descriptive word to indicate the similarities does nothing more than point out their presence so one can note for example that some worlds of experience are marked by a theme of personal annihilation that some worlds are that that are manifest in repeating experiences of being erased, rendered into non-being. These would be worlds in in the contemporary diagnostic, medical diagnostic system that are described as psychotic. I use the word so-called psychotic because I want to focus not on an illness that is assumed to be present inside a person, Mm -hmm. rather instead I want to focus on the experience that the person is having. So one, one set of worlds will be marked by a theme of, of uh, personal annihilation. Other worlds show a background of stability and substantiality, but within them there is an objectless foreboding, a feeling of being menaced but without any clear focus as to what the threat might be. A third group of worlds differing from the first two might be ones in which the personal sense of authenticity has been surrendered in an enslaving pattern of compliance in order to secure otherwise threatened ties to emotionally important others. Noting the presence of these various distinguishing themes and developing a descriptive vocabulary for them places no one in a box and does not get lost in a system of reified mental illnesses. So I'm imagining a phenomenological diagnostic system here. Mm And and three great distinctions that would be, and these are not exhaustive. There'd be an indefinite number of kinds of of worlds of which one might speak. But these are the three that came to mind as I was thinking this through.
1: Yeah, great.
0: So imagine a future in which we will have a richly developed phenomenological vocabulary and a wide and deep base of clinical knowledge about the life contexts in which the various kinds of experiences encountered come into being and are magnified imagine as well the accompanying field of psychotherapy practice in which our ways of approaching people would be uniquely tailored to the content of the individual world of the pers- of the of, of the persons turning to us for help so in years and decades to come I see our descendants looking back, focusing on the best that exists already. This leads to the second aspect of my hopeful vision, the extension of psychotherapy practice into the most extreme range of psychological disturbances. Those human situations currently grouped together as the so-called psychoses, our future counterparts, 50 and 100 years hence as I foresee them herald the efforts that are being made now to devise psychotherapeutic strategies for patients currently labeled psychotic. There have always been people working in our field who have undertaken the most difficult clinical cases. One thinks of Carl Gustav Jung, Paul Fadern, um, Sesha Hay, Lange, Swanger, Searles, Delorier, Winnicott, Sullivan, Mm -hmm. Fromm Reichman, Simrad, Karen, among others. But in our current world, such efforts are still the exception. And the consensus is the psychotherapeutic intervention in the so-called psychoses in particular, in what is called schizophrenia and bipolar disorder is an enterprise doomed for failure. In the more enlightened age that is to come, as I foresee it, if my hope turns out to be fulfilled anyway, such views will be widely regarded as without foundation. So my picture... in in regard to all this, is that we we will be seen in the future as having lived in a dark age, one sprinkled with points of light. I Mm -hmm. picture the whole way of conceptualizing psychological disturbances as shifting away from the ideas of illness and disorder, Mm -hmm. instead toward the specific human experiences that are involved. So we will, in the future, be speaking of crises, catastrophes, and chronic dilemmas and and not of dysfunction and disease. Those things understood as symptoms of psychopathology will become reinterpreted as symbols of emotional disaster and as attempted restorative reactions in the face of extreme trauma. The emphasis, in other words, will become transposed from what is lacking in relation to an imagined ideal of normality to an immersion in what is present as a lived experience. So that that kind of sums up in a general way.
1: Yes, it's such a rich and fascinating understanding of this idea of madness as really, as personal distress, as a catastrophe of being and an annihilation of the self. And yeah. that understanding that as reified diagnoses really just detaches the person from others and places them in a box that's just not facilitative or conducive to healing,
0: yes yeah. so I, I I thought what I might be able to do is get more specific, so let me talk about two categories sure. diagnostic categories that stand out in, importantly in our clinical practice, and get, sort of talk about the similarities and the different and the profound differences that Will be present when we view when we view the the human situations phenomenologically, as opposed to m- reflecting and imagined mental illness that exists mm-hmm. exactly inside a person. So let's start with schizophrenia, so-called schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Let me give just a brief thing about the history of this of the term itself. Um, an influential book appeared in the year 1911. From it was Eugen Bloiler's Dementia Praecox. Or the group of schizophrenias. This this is the book in which the term was first coined. In addition to introducing the term schizophrenia to our world, this work attempted to describe and gives a series, a long series of examples of widely differing forms of the most extreme psychological disturbances that exist. Blumer's book, which I've studied closely. Is worth reading even today for its rich accounts of madness and its many variations. Although his work does suffer from some extreme limitations from our present vantage point, the clinical description the clinical descriptions Boiler gives us are framed within a broadly Cartesian intra-psychic frame of reference, focusing on the individual mind and in its in its own isolated pathology. Boiler locates the description the description locates the disturbances being considered inside the patients he's studying, who are then pictured in relation to their worlds. The presentations, in addition, tend to be restricted to the pre- the patient's symptomatology in the present moment, leaving out of account the complex histories and relational contexts in which their symptoms are embedded and have meaning. Finally, the book is written almost entirely from the perspective of the medical model viewing psychological disturbances as disease processes occurring in the mind. A, a, a very wonderful project that I've thought a lot about, one that would require a great many years of devotion, would be a modern counterpart to Boiler's classic study. Mm-hmm. This would involve even more detailed descriptions and examples of madness in its many forms and variations with the focus, however, always being on the subjective states that are involved. That's phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Such an emphasis would then be accompanied by complex life historical perspectives from which the overt symptom pictures are cast in relation to the personal background of the people involved there would only be one way to accomplish the immense task I'm suggesting, the collaboration of a number of dedicated clinicians and thinkers. It would be required that there be long-term commitments to the patients being studied as well, so that the inquiry into their worlds have a grounding in deep explorations of history and also include the nature of the healing processes that can be achieved. Boiler proposed that the heart of what was known in his time as Dementia Praecox consisted in various splitting processes con- occurring in the mind as he thought about it. Hence the term schizophrenia. The term derives from Greek root schizine, meaning split or division, phrenos meaning mind or soul. The splitting processes that Bloiler was talking about included the disintegration of the logical associations of thought, the splitting of cognition away from accompanying affect or emotion, the dividing of positive and negative emotions from each other, love and hate, mm. and, and, and the separating off, the splitting away of a private reality from contact with the externally real. And that, that that's Bloiler's. Framework there. Uh My my own view is that future phenomenological studies of patients in this range, in other words, of of madness itself, Uh will show how these various features that Bloiler focused on can be significantly understood as secondary to a sense of personal annihilation. Uh This means that the primary disturbance would be seen in the shattering or even erasure of the experience of personal selfhood Mm-hmm. also central would be the dissolution of the sense of the realness of the world and the disintegration of all that we ordinarily experience as substantial and enduring the most prominent visible symptoms then of these disturbances such as one sees in hallucinations and delusions in in the context i'm describing appear instead as restitutive or reparative reactions, efforts to reunify all that has fallen apart and resolidify all that has melted away. I have a couple of quick clinical stories that might, ex- might illustrate what I'm talking about. Consider the following extra brief accounts as standing for a 100 that I could give you. One of my patients from many years ago came to me after a long period in a psychiatric hospital. She was 21 years old at the time. She described herself as having always been in, quote, pieces, unquote, as having somehow separate and distinct, quote, selves, unquote, Mm -hmm. that floated about in a strange space without there being a common center. There was a sexual self, a religious self a political self, a comical, funny, hilarious self, a professional self, and a social self. Each of these entities, as she described them, embodied an area of her interests and capabilities. But the strange thing was that they were like islands suspended in the sea with no land bridges between them. It was interesting to me that a delusion haunting her during the many months of her hospitalization was a belief that she was part of a world revolution aiming to dissolve traditional nation-states and establish a universal government based on the power of all-embracing love. My, my interpretation of this was that out of her own personal fragmentation into the various autonomous selves that she described, it seemed was arising a dream of world unity. She had been told by her doctors during her hospitalization that her diagnosis was that of schizophrenia, and confused about what this meant, she told me how she had studied Bloiler's derivation of the term and the etymology, yeah. uh, which took you know took it back to the original meanings of split and mind. Right. She said because she, she couldn't relate to. To, to to any of that. Mm-hmm. But she said that a better translation she came upon that still respected the etymology in terms of the Greek it comes from, but connecting more closely to her own familiar self-experience would be, quote, torn soul instead of split mind, unquote, instead of, quote, split mind, unquote, obviously rooted in her feeling of being in pieces. I, I, have to say about this that it's one of the most astute things I have ever heard on this subject, and it was unforgettable to me how beautiful that was.
1: It's quite profound, yeah.
0: She and I worked together for several decades and got along very well. As I was trying to pull my notes together for this talk, I I thought of another patient also diagnosed, her her formal diagnosis, this is from DSM-2, was uh, chronic, undifferentiated schizophrenia. A 19, another 19 or 20-year-old woman I worked with for a great many decades, actually. But early in my work with her, she uh, one day came into my office and announced that she said, George, I'm 13 different people. And I asked her, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> you know, okay. different people. This is my patient, Anna who is described in 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 some detail in Abyss of Madness and yes. appears in a number of papers. And Actually, the first time she appeared in our writings was in 1987 in the book Psychoanalytic Treatment, an Intersubjective Approach. Any, anyway, she was able to explain to me a little bit further what she was talking about, about being in 13 different pieces. I said, well, t- t- tell, tell me, wh- what are these pieces? And she said... First, there's the person I was from when I was born until I was four, when my grandfather died. Then there's the person I was from age four to age seven when my sister was born. Then there's the per- person I was from age seven till age eight when my family moved for the first time. Her family was a military family, constantly being moved from base to base to base. Mm-hmm. So her whole childhood consisted in a ser- consecutive series of losses and separations and dislocations. I see. So that was so that was three, and then the fourth one was from eight eight to nine or nine to ten and ten to eleven. She moved again and again and again. Included in the list was an ex- experience of the loss of her first boyfriend at age thirteen. So fi- finally, what she had described was thirteen intervals of time in her life history, and what she was saying is that she was all these different pieces distributed along the axis of time, but there was no wholeness to her. And the, the, the struggle to become whole became a deep theme in the whole psychotherapeutic relationship that she and I had, and that's described in her 1987 book. The, this, this patient was not, you know, when, when I describe this patient, sometimes people say, oh, she's a dissociated person. She dissociated the different selves from each other. The answer to that is no. Mm this is not a case of dissociation it's a case of primary fragmentation the the center cannot hold mm. and pieces fall apart and and in her case unlike the first one i gave a moment ago the pieces were distributed along the axis of time well like i said i could give you 98 more
1: <laughs> they're all in your work
0: they they're all in there but they they would all be stories of People in various states of annihilation, which can appear in all kinds of different ways. It can take the form of becoming infinitely dead in the core of one's being, Mm -hmm. of falling to pieces along the axis of time, as in the second case, as just being in pieces altogether to start with, Mm -hmm. as in the first case. It can can take the form of of the loss of uh, agency, the the mm-hmm. sense that one has a will and a capacity to 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 form and carry out, and in te- in exercise intentionality and a, a, a num- number of other things. So I, I see annihilation experiences as multi-dimensional,
1: yes. and
0: t- taking lots and lots of different forms. Let me let me switch over now to the other great category of the severe psychological disturbances bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness so-called bipolar disorder again the the approach is phenomenological as I think about bipolar disorder, I don't think it has been scientifically demonstrated although many people say it has. I don't see the actual supporting science that this this is a an internal illness who has a, d- a definite biology to it that uh has gen- genetic predispositions playing an important role. I I think the science has holes in it so great that you can drive whole fleets of Mack trucks through those holes. <laughs> And, and so it becomes it becomes a problem what is the source then of the people's conviction and certainty right. in psychiatry about that that, that i' I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I know I, I play with the idea sometimes it's a terror of madness mm. uh, it's that that, our, that our field, the people in our field are frightened by what they see and what they study and what they're involved with, and they want to believe there's something defective in the in the internal workings of their patients. Mm. Let, let, let lest they encounter the possibility of themselves falling and in, falling into the abyss of madness.
1: Yes, perhaps the, like what you were saying earlier, they sort of want to be off the hook. They want off the off the hook and uh-huh. and
0: to be outside outside the field of what they're talking about, as opposed to being inside it, intimately yes. involved, implicated, and possibly vulnerable to falling apart in the same way.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. By the way, I, I see. So-called psychosis, and I don't use I don't in my own clinical practice. I never use that term, and I would never tell a patient that he or she was psychotic. I think it's unethical. It's incredibly destructive to do that, and I'm i I become really angry when I hear that it's it's happened to people. And anyway, back to so-called bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. What is it in 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 my book, Abyss of Madness? I made a claim that the most important frontier, as I see it, for present-day uh, psychoanalytic clinical research is the, is the psychotherapy of bipolar disorder, also known as manic depressive illness. The, I mean, these are medical diagnostic designations in, but embedded in the Cartesian worldview. But uh, how these patients do, carrying a diagnosis like this will appear under phenomenological perspective remains to be seen. And the innovations that might then become possible in our approach to them working clinically are, are still to be defined. Some progress has been made on this. I want to talk about that. I think the psychotherapy of the human disasters that are called schizophrenia, has a, there's more knowledge that's been established in that area than, than there has in bipolar disorder. And, and that's mirrored in my own personal history of uh, clinical experiences. I've I've had much more success with a number, I I won't say, I'll never say all patients or anything like that, I certainly haven't, but I've had a number of successful experiences with long-term psychotherapy of so-called schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But I can't say the same with bipolar disorder, but it's not for lack of trying. Mm-hmm. i've tried very, very hard a bit of, I'm, I'm still a little bit mystified by why it 's so difficult and i I like to think that we our our knowledge is not advanced to the point but it, but it can get there if we understand properly what 's going on so let me talk about the understanding of that Great. a fabulous insight into the experiential core of many of the patients showing an oscillating pattern of mania and depression was given to us by my friend and colleague and co-author, Bernard Branshaft. My, my friend Branshaft died a few, year, a few years ago, but his work is summed up in his in his book Toward an Emancipatory Psychoanalysis is the name of the book. And in that book, he, he saw a problem in manic depressive illness or bipolar disorder, again, involving a sense of personal annihilation Inside the view that he offered, the manic episode expresses a transitory liberation from annihilating ties to caregivers. The depression that ensues as the mania comes to an end, in contrast, represents the reinstatement of those annihilating ties. So there's been a as as Bernie, as my friend Bernie saw it, there's been a division that has occurred between accommodative, compliant trends in a patient's life, and opposite individualizing, separating, liberating trends in their in their personalities. Mm. On one side, on one side of the division of the patient, there's a compliant surrender to authority, and the installation within the patient's selfhood of other people's, the parents purposes and expectations. Hmm. On the other side is a glorious overthrow of such captivity and the embracing of shining freedom. The magical emancipation of the manic episode, of course, just can't last because there's nothing and no one to really support it. And so it collapses into dark despair. Here are some questions that, that for me, emerge from Bernie's profound understanding of of the bipolar pattern. Can an experience be facilitated with with a therapist that establishes a new center for the patient, one in which compliance and rebellion are somehow reintegrated with one another? Can the empathic understanding of the clinician become a medium in which previously aborted developmental processes can be reinstated? Can a deep understanding of what's at stake for the bipolar patient finally make a constructive difference to his or her destiny in the continuing nightmare of, his af- of the affective storms? The, the, great, the great psychoanalyst Frieda Fromm Reichman in 1954 published a now classic clinical study. Its title was an intensive study of 12 cases of manic depressive psychosis. There was a generalization that fits with Bernie Branshaft's ideas that emerged from Frieda Fromm Reichmann's study. It, it was the notion that such patients were in their families of origin treated as extensions of their caregivers rather than as independent beings in their own rights. Mm. I would like to see a modern counterpart to Frieda Fromm Reichmann's classic work tracing carefully the subjective worlds and histories of bipolar patients and exploring the outer limits of our efficacy as therapists mm. in, in ar- arresting their destructive patterns and stabilizing their lives. The key to success in such a project will be in the new understandings flowing from Brandshaft's insight, one highlighting the patient's need to find pathways of emancipation from enslaving accommodation that do not lead into the structureless chaos of the manic episode. I, I have another example I can I can give. It's very brief, but let me let me just give it. I'm, I'm not sure how successfully I can com- communicate the uh, the ideas that Bernie is working with through mm-hmm. this. example, But let me give it a try.
1: Let's go for it. Yeah.
0: Okay an amazing example of the twin sides of bipolarity is given in a classic of the literature of madness Kate jameson's an unquiet mind the literature of madness that's my my phrase i coined but that would that that would be the writings of people who either are in the midst of se- severe psychological disturbances or or sometimes after recovery they write about them so mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think the study of that literature is indispensable for every clinician. And, and so, Kate Jamison's book, *An Unquiet Mind*, tells the story of her manic depressive illness, so-called. And she's a, she's a Ph.D. in psychology, but she has bought into the medical model and considers her own so-called manic depressive illness as as, as a disorder inside of her having genetic components so she, so she's she sub- subscribes to the medical model but my, my story is not is 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 to only tangentially about this so let me let me tell something her story okay a little bit of her story this author k jameson tells about an extended resistance as a young woman against her doctor on the issue of taking mood-stabilizing drugs. She she was starting to oscillate between mania and depressions as a young woman. And the oscillations became so severe that she finally entered psychiatric treatment, but fought battle after battle with her doctor overtaking the drugs that would stabilize her. So back and forth, the arguments between Kay and her doctor went with her trying to defend her right to a life free of such medical interventions, but with her psychiatrist telling her she had a biologically based mental illness that absolutely required medication in order for her to be able to function. Finally, with the greatest reluctance Kay agreed to begin on a course of taking regular doses of lithium carbonate. However, when she went to the pharmacy to pick up her prescription, she suddenly was seized by a terrifying vision. She saw in her mind's eye vast numbers of poisonous snakes approaching her vicinity in the San Fernando Valley and foresaw how these dangerous creatures would strike at her and all those she cared about in her life, filling their bodies with lethal toxins. So Kate purchased along with her lithium all the snake bite kits the ph- pharmacy had available. Wow, yeah. Hoping to use the kits to save herself and as many people as she could. Mm. So here's my theory of what this delusion about snakes symbolized. But by the way, K. Jameson herself hasn't a clue about the symbolism of her experience, but she does a beautiful job just laying those experiences out, which gives us then the opportunity to un- to study them, interpret them, make mm-hmm. sense of them Here's So here's my theory of the snakes, the poison carried by these imagined creatures about to be injected into Kay herself, as she filled her prescription, the, po- the poison that was also endangering the unsuspecting public represented symbolically the diagnostic authority of her doctor, to which she was in the process of capitulating, surrendering. The theme of a first fighting back willfully against pressures of domination, but then caving in and surrendering, appears also in Kay's early family childhood and life, she describes it as being as having been a battle against oppressive control, most importantly, the control of her mother. The side of this woman, K. Jameson, tending toward compliance surrender, was accepting into her self-definition the medical attribution, attributions she had earlier refused. The side of her wanting to protect her self-integrity from invasion and takeover armed itself with antidotes to snake venom. So that, that that's my story of Kay Jamison.
1: Yes. You know, I appreciate this last example, George, to illuminate what you mean about so-called bipolar disorder, but specifically how it supports privileging the voices and stories of people experiencing the distress rather than sort of theorizing about it from a detached position, which people can fall into doing in the field.
0: Yes, yes. That that pretty much concludes the uh, the, the initial thoughts that I, would, that I that that I was having. Now I don't know if I've answered the, all the questions that you that you asked at the at the at the beginning. It's my first step. Do you, does anything come up for you that do fur- further?
1: You know, I think you really thoroughly answered the questions. Actually, I I to sort of summarize as I was listening to you describe it. Uh, I see you as really advocating for a tailored approach to understanding the relational and historical context of individuals' extreme states, and as you put, subjective being. Uh, And I I think those cases just really beautifully depicted how nuanced and holistic that sort of intersubjective approach can be uh, to empathically reinstate healing and create like an enduring center in a person when, when it feels like that's not there anymore for them.
0: That's, that's beautiful. I can, I can tell you're totally understanding what I'm trying to say there. So thank, thank you so
1: much. Well, it's been such a pleasure to hear from you today, Dr. Atwood. So thank you for your fascinating recounting of your work and perspectives. For our listeners interested in reading more about Dr. Atwood's work, many of it is featured on his personal website. Again, that's www.georgeatwood.com, a link you can find at Madden America within this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Atwood.
0: You're welcome. So thank So Thank you so much. Well, I just wanted to take a moment to thank both Dr. Atwood and Zenobia for that fascinating interview. Thank you for listening. Please come back next week for another episode. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.